Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, everyone. Thanks for coming out, man. I'm going to break with protocol a little bit and do intros. Um, Thank you. Thank, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Giannis, the Lavian Eagle, down the end. Uh, Cody Lujan, who uh, describes himself earlier as having come from, let me get this right, come from a ranching and Olympic ski jumping family. <laughs> thanks. Uh, this guy, could, would you mind? Oh, yeah. Wait, this guy, competition but, right but show, show. This guy, you can't see it. He has a hat. He has a farmer's tan on his head. <laughs> he has the pale lines of his hat stitching. Webbing. Ryan Callahan from all the way, uh, all the way from uh, First Light World Headquarters in Ketchum, Idaho, and then Colorado's own Brody Henderson, who's on the, the Meat Eater crew. Brody's a semi-retired uh, fly fishing guide. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Good way yeah, of putting yeah. it. But yeah, man, thanks for coming out. And I, I come through uh, Denver a fair bit. Last time I came through here, I had one of you guys' big giant mule deer bucks, which I took back home with me. Um, earlier, though, another time I went through, has anyone here ever been to the Lindenmeyer, the Lindenmeyer site? You know about this. Okay. So, like, if you go way back in time, so, like, the first 
culture of American hunters that, that emerged as like a distinctly American culture was this place called, this group called the Clovis Hunters. And they were Ice Age hunters. So they hunted mammoths and short-faced bears and they were widely dispersed and they developed this very distinctive projectile point called the Clovis Point. It's regarded as a diagnostic projectile point where if you find one and look at it, you're like, that is 13,000 plus years old and that's who made that thing was the Clovis. Now, around the time when Clovis came, it's debated about how this happened, but all that megafauna, the, the mammoths, mastodons, short-faced bears, you know, nine genera of large mammals all vanished, kind of contemporaneous with the arrival of Clovis. And out of this came all these different cultures. And the, the culture that emerged here, where we are now, was this culture called the Folsom culture. And so most of the Ice Age stuff was all gone, and Folsom was a group of slightly post Ice Age hunters from around 12,000 years ago who basically hunted the same stuff we hunt today because all that crazy stuff was gone. Lindenmeyer is the second most famous Folsom site. The most famous Folsom site is in northeast New Mexico and it's called the Folsom site near Folsom, New Mexico. <laughs> and it's where Folsom was identified and they had driven uh, 13 bison antiquis up into a dead-end canyon and killed them with adelatles and butchered them all on site. And it was a temporary encampment. But what's crazy about Lindenmeyer, Lindenmeyer, just north of here, is the oldest known place that we have, which would have been what we now think of as a rendezvous of hunters. It seems as though, at times, for some unknown reason, hundreds of Folsom hunters would show up at the Lindenmeyer site. So many, like, their, their projectile point's kind of distinctive, and it's regarded as the most difficult projectile point to make because they would knock a channel out of each face of their projectile point, and they would haft, they would haft that thing. So you got a spearhead, a foreshaft, and there's even a camel bone foreshaft that came out of Lindenmeyer. So they were maybe dabbling with some stuff that's now extinct, but they would deal these like little fluted points, and they'd haft them in a thing. And that flute, that channel that they would knock out is distinctive of a Folsom point. And at the Lindenmeyer site, they have excavated 1,000 channels. So that many guys making these very specialized points there. Uh, when they were there, they ate jackrabbit, cottontail rabbit, bison. They ate venison. Oftentimes, they'll be eating turtle, and they ate turtle at Lindenmeyer. So great generalist hunters. And people often wonder, like, well, how could it have been that these people who lived at such low population densities, how could they have all found each other and why did they come together? And it's funny because they had, they brought to Lindenmeyer site, they had red ochre that came out of northern Wyoming and they had tool stone that came out of the Texas panhandle. And it's regarded that the Folsom hunters lived at such low densities, it doesn't make sense that they did hand-to-hand -hand trading. There probably wasn't enough of them to have trade channels. It's thought that, because they had great fidelity to, to stone sources, they seemed to be more associated with quarries where they would get the very particular type of rocks that they liked to use to make projectile points. They had more fidelity to the stone source than they did to their hunting grounds. But they liked Lindenmeyer maybe because you're kind of in the mountains, you're kind of on the plains, you have the foothills, there's a lot of stuff to hunt. And there's this big multi-story geologic feature there that's like a red and white bands of rock. And you can see this thing from 18 miles away. 
There's a theory that you could say to a dude down in the Texas panhandle in Ice Age America, just walk up the edge of the mountains. And when you see, right, that's where we'll meet in five years. And somehow <laughs> it would work out that these mass accumulations of Folsom hunters would gather at the Lindenmeyer site. So I bring that up only because um, here you have, right, they're generalist hunters. They eat a wide array of things that people might now regard as a little unusual. And they would gather under this large structure. And here we all are again tonight, 12,700 years later, gathered in the Oriental Theater of Denver. So welcome. Uh, you have to there's, a, there's a couple of housekeeping issues we have to take care of. Uh, there's a guy named Dan and his wife, Ashley, and his daughter, Scout, want to wish him a happy Father's Day. Yeah. So there's that. Callahan. There's a couple things I got to finish up. Uh, Callahan just got a, was telling me about a chigger bite on his scrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I told you that in confidence, Stephen. <laughs> Uh, he didn't show it to us. He didn't show it, yeah. We've talked many times about cleaning morel mushrooms. Now, Brody, where, where, can I tell where this guy was roughly where you live? Sure. Tell him where you live. Just south of Steamboat, Stagecoach Reservoir. Has anyone here, has anyone here found a morel within, let's say, what's a ferry radius that you would say there aren't 50 any? miles. Has anyone found a morel within 50 miles of, of Brody's house? No, yes. Really? That. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you guys find morels in Colorado, eastern Colorado? But not up in the mountains, though. Not in the mountains. Not, not up by us. Point being, Callahan, we've talked at length about cleaning morels. A chef wants you to know that he washes them, does wash them to get all the bugs and dirt off, dries them in a salad spinner a bunch of times, leaves the water that falls out of the salad spinner in the bottom of the salad spinner, places it in his fridge, for two days, it somehow holds enough humidity and the fridge's climate is such that when you pull the morel out of that salad spinner, it is indistinguishable from when you picked it out of the dirt. Just wanted you to know that. <laughs> Another guy uh, wants to know this. He's trying to figure out when he dies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I would tell this chef that he is losing mushroom. He's beating that mushroom up far too much. Okay, I mean, so this, killing this, it twice. So that means speak. that now this morale conversation will have to continue into future. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to take care of a couple of things that just need to be put to rest. House cleaning. Yeah, yeah. housekeeping. Keep it going. Uh, a guy wanted to know this. We, we had talked a lot about, I talked a lot about what I want to happen to my carcass when I die. He has it that he wants to be cremated, but then his wife is supposed to take the ash and have it made into clay pigeons. And then hold a clay pigeon shoot where his friends come and shoot him out of the sky. <laughs> so he goes on to say, I'm not even sure if there's a company that does that. <laughs> Maybe after first light, Cal, you could get into that business. Yeah. Yeah. Always thinking. Uh, 
Another question, and this is pertinent for something else. Why Blouch? Where did Blouch come from? Giannis, can you give background on Blouch? It's just how you say boom or bang in Latvian. In Latvian. I'd been, when I learned from Giannis' father, Giannis, all Latvians are named Giannis. <laughs> Giannis is, yeah, that's true. Like Giannis' father, Giannis, when I heard the word blouch from him, it became my favorite word. And everyone assumed that it's B-L-O-U-C-H. And, and Giannis clarified that that's not it. It's B-L-O-U-K-S with a... Yeah, A-U-K-S. A-U-K-S with a blank. So if you go and look, we have our special Blouch t-shirts, Meteor Podcast Blouch shirts. It is not misspelled. (laughs) It's spelled the right way. Also, you'll find our posters. There's a story behind the poster where one day I was talking about if I was a painter, what I would paint is a scene that was described to me by our friend Brandon Butler, which is he was watching a turkey gobble on a cold morning, and he described how when that turkey would rip out a gobble, you would see steam come out of his beak. And I was so moved by that, I said that if I was a painter, I would make that painting. And so we had a, a, a fan make a special turkey, steam-breathing gobble turkey, and that is the story behind that special commemorative Meat Eater podcast steam breathing turkey poster so that is explained now moving on to another thing let me see i want to make sure this is our last squirrel keeping our, our uh, squirrel it keeping. is this is the last yeah, squirrel okay. keeping last piece of housekeeping and this is another thing we really need to put to rest a long time ago i argued that that when someone says like things got awful western right? <laughs> Which I'd never heard because I grew up in Michigan. But people were like, things got awful Western there. And I said, yeah, like squirrely. And people wrote in, a guy wrote in, he's like, no, because Western, there's an implied physical danger in Western that is absent from squirrely. <laughs> so I did a long correction where I said, I stand corrected. Um, Squirrely is like he used the example like Giannis stepped on an arrow, the arrow now shoots squirrely. Okay, uh, he used the example Callahan hit on a guy's girlfriend in a bar, things got western. <laughs> but he, but this guy writes in, he says, The correction needs to be corrected. He's from South Florida, <laughs> and he What's says, in the motorsports world, Squirrely damn sure has a sense of physical danger involved. When you're going down the road and your bike gets squirrely, watch out. It's not good. And he also says that he introduced me to a term which is squid, which is a squirrely kid. <laughs> and another guy wrote in to wind up saying that he says, in addition to Western and squirrely, you need to be aware of two terms from the Northeast, which is snotty and sporty. He goes on to explain he's he's an attorney, works largely in the legal cannabis market right now, so he's very busy. (laughs) And he says that if C's pick up to a level where you're uncomfortable, but it's not perilous, one would describe that as being a bit snotty. If things pick up from there and you really need to be paying attention, 
things have now gotten sporty. He also uses sporty when describing heated professional discussions. That's the housekeeping portion. So <laughs> thank you for bearing with us. Now, to get into some of the meat here, um, try to think of how best to bring this up. There's something we need to resolve. Okay, I'm going to do this. The five people present up here on stage. To start out, we're going to handle it like this. Is there a grizzly bear in Colorado right now? <laughs> okay. If, if you believe yes, raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look at those. Yeah. All right, there's a, there's a little background to this. We've, we've been quibbling or quibbling. getting snotty or getting Western over we've this issue. Well, uh, the past couple of days. Um, I will say, I don't know if there's a Grizz in Colorado here today, but I can say unequivocally. Um, some of you know my background in the, in the woods and otherwise, but unequivocally, I uh, witnessed a young male boar grizzly in northern Colorado last year, just a few miles south of the Wyoming border, out in some sagebrush. And uh, that's, I stand, that's where I stand. And that's fantastic. Yeah. So... It's kind of like... Can we go and do a little background? Yeah, let's go a little background. Let's go, let's go deep dive. Let's do it. Okay. Deep dive. Let me consult my stuff here. Because I want to give you guys like a little background on the issue. Um, oh, I should point out. I usually like to point out when there's a good transition. Do you remember earlier talking about how the Folsom guys brought ochre down from Wyoming? Huh? Huh? I remember that. Vaguely, yeah. Grizzlies yeah. coming down from Wyoming. Right. You like that transition? Red desert grizzlies. Right. So where are you leading us? I'll give okay. you about a four out of ten. What's that? Yeah. I'll give about a four. <laughs> for yeah. Good segue. As the ochre. Uh, Brody, you were saying yesterday, like, what do all famous grizzly bears from the old days share in common? <clears throat> old. Old Ephraim was the last bear in Utah. Yep. New Mexico had an old grizzly of some name. Old Mose. Old Mose. Old Nine Toe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, old Silver. Now, Old Mose, I want to talk about Old Mose a little bit because Brady, uh, Brody and I were talking about Old Mose recently, who met his end in 1904. Uh, old Mose was a bear that his name comes from the fact that he moseyed around. And you'll find when you're looking at like old famous bear stories, like the last grizzly here and the last grizzly there, they share in common an extraordinarily long lifespan where old Moe seems to have terrified people for 40 years. <laughs> and to account for the fact that he was terrifying people across the entirety of the state, the same rascally bear that refused to be caught, he, someone had to account for like how he could be everywhere all at once. So he naturally became old Moe's as in the moseying around bear. And his le- old Moses legend starts with a guy named Jason- Jacob Radcliffe, who's out hunting deer and elk, gets mauled by a bear in 1883. His buddies find him. He's dying in the woods. They load him on a horse, bring him down to a ranch, and he expires with probably my favorite dying words of all time, which is, boys, don't hunt that bear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And this was down in the Arkansas River drainage. That was correct? Arkansas yeah. River drainage? Yeah. Uh-huh. I think so, yeah. Okay, so people then don't take his advice and they just start hunting that bear. 
And every bear that anyone goes near turns out to be old Moe's. And there's a guy where at a point there's a skeleton turns up and there's a skeleton, some boots, a sp- some spurs and a carbine and the bones have been gnawed on. And that death is ascribed to old Moe's, of course. Eventually in the spring of 1904, a couple guys. So this is a year after, like this is the year after the Wright brothers had their first sustained flight in a heavier than air vehicle to set it in time. In 1904, a guy named Wharton Pig and James Anthony gets some hounds and they get after old Moe's and they catch it and it turns into a very squirrely, very Western shootout. <laughs> Anthony later describes hitting old Moe's behind the shoulder and he used the term, I still don't know what it means, but it's my new favorite term. He hits it in the shoulder and the bullet lodged up against on the other side, a place that he describes as the sticking place. <laughs> Which, I like that. The shoulder blade? Maybe that muscle behind the shoulder. Is there like blade? a spot? Don't you think? Wouldn't that be like a like if you're gonna knife a hog, or like you know what <laughs> oh, I mean? That's what he like means. the sticking place. That's the place where you stick that pig. That's got to be right. Like, yeah, that's yeah. got to be it. I hadn't yeah. really thought of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I thought he Entry meant that there's like a spot that. Yeah. that he finds that his bullets wind yeah. up in without exiting <laughs> the sticking place, but he means. That like the entry point. Place. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a great name for a bar, actually, man. <laughs> yeah. That definitely trumps um, you know, West Bond. <laughs> My brother wanted to name one the repeat offender. Um, but uh, yeah, and the sticking place, that's got to be what the sticking place means. So. So dies old Moe's and kind of like so dies a legend. And then it winds up being that the last bear vanishes. Let me just make sure I'm getting my facts straight here. The last bear in Colorado up until a point, the last bear was, what year was that, Brody? The last, when they think they killed the last one was 52. 52. Government trapper. A government. So that was like a known thing where a government trapper goes out and on contract kills one. Yeah, now it's in the San Juans where they were known to be like the last holdouts of a bear of grizzlies in Colorado. And then somehow weirdly, and this is where this is where Cody, this is where like this is the thing that starts to add up. What this is where it starts to add this up. This is where shit gets squirrely, right? This yep. is where things get squirrely. <laughs> yep. Because so 1952, last grizzly's gone, but in 1979. Along comes Ed Wiseman. Who, can you tell the ballad of Ed Wiseman? He's walking down a trail. With Where? San, again, the San Juans. In the San Juans. In the San Juans. Let me do basic math. What's 79 minus 52? 27. 27 years after the last grizzly's been killed. Right. Here's Ed. He's archery hunting, apparently, and I believe what's a wilderness area now. I don't think it was then. It may have been, but... um. The story is obviously convoluted as these kind of things go, but um, supposedly he gets jumped by a grizzly and manages to, and this is like before archery hunters were commonly using compound bows, so he's hunting with a, he's hunting with a recurve bow, wood arrows, gets jumped by an angry grizzly and uh, manages to kill it by stabbing it with the arrow in, in the heart. 
Like, I mean, like... Right in the sticking place. Right in the sticking place. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they investigate the whole thing because some people later claim that he shot the bear. His hunting partners yeah, claim that. Yeah, His hunting partners, some... And, and I don't... This is just internet lore. Right. But, like, some of his hunter partners later said, no, 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 no. He got onto it in the meadow, put a stalk on it, and arrowed it. Right. But he passed a lie detector test when yeah, they interviewed him. he did pass a lie detector him. test. And no one contested, like, there's no one that contested the legitimacy of the no, bear. No, it was confirmed by, I believe, confirmed by bi- biologists as a grizzly. And they, they went and searched the whole state after that. I was five years old. Yeah, and they launched a very, oh, the thing to add in about this bear she had, is, had cubs. it was a sow. Right. It was old, arthritic. Its claws and teeth were wore down. But, but it had at some point in its life bore young. Right. So it had been a reproductively viable bear. Where we sit right now, the closest grizzlies are 200 miles away, right? Probably over 200 from here. The southern, southern end of the Wind River Range. So here you have a 25-year absent. Is that what that math comes down to? A 27-year absence. Oh, from 79? From the last bear 40, to 79. Or, no, 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 no. I'm saying that first okay. absence. Yeah. And then there's one. Bam. Miraculous. Now, like some, so some writers get involved in this, right? Like Rick Bass did a, did a book about it. And Peterson. David Peterson did a book about the search. But no one's ever then turned up proof. Now... There's a ton here, but I just want to throw this out real quick. Uh, a bow hunter from Australia named Adam Greentree saw one last year. He's in a tough spot, though. Not being American, he's in a tough spot. Because, like, if I was in Australia, okay, let's say I go to Australia, and I'm like, oh, hey, yo, uh, by the way, the wombats aren't distributed how you guys understand wombats to be distributed, you can imagine the degree to which, right, the resistance I'm going to get. So he's like, it's like a, it's a tough stance to take as someone who can't represent lifelong exposure to, to grizzlies and black bears. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. 
I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So, when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Um, Walking through this thing a little more. So they did, they did an exhaustive search. The consensus, the scholarly academic consensus is no. But people routinely come forward and oftentimes credible people come forward and you're like, I saw one. Right? Absolutely. Is he Absolutely. credible? Am I how credible? I regard him as credible. <laughs> I have the cross. He's got a sunburn. He's got a cross. He's got a sunburn. Like he's got a farmer's tan on the top of his head. The guy, the guy spends time out in the woods. Now you get into like, why does this matter? And I think that, so give your stance on why it matters. Wow. How do you, you, don't how, like do you do, how far down the rabbit hole do we want to go? Um, oh, I, I, think it, I think it matters from a, a few standpoints. I mean, I think people have the, literally just a basic right to know, you know, if these animals are here, I think there is a potential safety issue going forward. Um, I don't think there's many of these bears, but, you know, we call it kind of in my world the sagebrush telegraph, which is a lot of the, you know, communications between ranchers and people who live in rural communities. And so, you know, conspiracy theories run rampant no matter where you are, especially when it comes to apex predators, wolves, wolverines, and now grizzlies, apparently. And so 
Um, anywhere where where I thought I saw where I saw this bear is um, come to find out, three other families had uh, apparently seen the same animal within like a five or six mile radius within a two week span of when I saw it. So. I think people have, we need to know if these animals are actually coming down through here, especially with what's going on with, uh, now that the state has finally admitted that we have an established wolf population here in Colorado. Yep, which was used to be only kooks said that. Right. Wait, so, they haven't admitted that there's an established wolf population. They've admitted that there's wolves traveling into the state. Transient. I, no, yes. I believe there was, because um, we had some of the wolf meetings. I'm also from old Steamboat Springs. Um, we had, for the wolf meetings, there was a statement... And uh, perhaps I'm wrong, but I do believe that it said that it was an established Not wolf population to the in Jackson Colorado County. Parks and Wildlife guy that we talked to today. So the wolves are transient only, but a bunch of them. Yeah. But yeah. we see them. Yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> so I think you know, in the same breath, I think it's important for people to know what what's going on uh, here in Colorado. We've had a confirmed wolverine. We've got wolves. What's keeping the grizz from crossing the There's state line? There was a confirmed line? wolverine in Colorado. There was. The one that ended up in North Dakota. In North Dakota, Dakota the rancher, oh. that rancher but shot he was him. wacky. He was, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you know, we've talked about this before, but a wolf came out of the uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula and got killed in Missouri. A known wolf, like an identified wolf. So things will pack up and leave. Oh, absolutely. So is it possible that grizzlies are trickling them matriculating into Colorado? I think absolutely. Very many? No. As far as your right to know, though, Colorado has a lot of black bears. Right. Tons of black bears. So the fact that you know a grizzly bear is out there, is that going to change your behavior at all? No, I don't think it's going to change your behavior. You always need to be better Can't aware. You know. Well, exactly. But I mean, in terms no, of... No, but you'll be carrying trekking poles. You'll you? be... Yeah, trekking poles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Carry good poking stick. A <laughs> good poking stick. Uh, you know, bear spray. I mean, like you, you know, I spent a lot of time around black bears and seen a lot of really big black bears go in their graves. And so I like to think, and I've been around a lot of grizzlies in my guiding days in Alaska. So I like to think I'm a somewhat decent, credible witness when I see these things. And then when I see a picture and my buddy shows me a picture of a bear that. And you showed me that picture. Yesterday. What, what, what did you think picture. that was? But here's the thing. I didn't take the picture. Right. And right. it's Pictures a picture of a I could picture. show you my phone right now, and I could be like, look at all this. But you didn't right. know you had giant lingcod in Colorado. <laughs> we, what do we have? We were on stagecoach yesterday. Yeah, yeah. where else could I got? We where else could I have gotten this picture? <laughs> but, and, and that's the, you know, that's the, the tough thing uh, about saying that you saw an animal like that in a state where they don't exist. You walk out on that limb and go on a live podcast and talk about it. So <laughs> here's the thing. I've always sympathized with those yeah. guys because oftentimes those guys wind up being right. How many people said, how many people tried to explain away every mountain lion in the eastern U.S. as an escape pet? Where soon you have what must be like this very thriving industry of mountain lion owners that no one really knew about who are <laughs> habitually cutting loose their pets Dropping them off at the park, man. Yeah. And after a while, people had to come to terms with it doesn't make sense, but some number of these things must be packing up camp in the Black Hills of South Dakota and deciding to go many hundreds of miles relatively undetected. So, sure, man. And, 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 and I want to clarify like, my perspective on it. I... 
like, I, I want to like, sort of like nuance out my position on it. I think that I take, see, it, it's so complicated, I can't, it's inexpressible by the, the English language. Look, <laughs> if someone right now said, hey, did you hear the news? Um, a car hit a grizzly in Colorado. I wouldn't even be a teensy bit surprised because for one of those things to travel 200 miles out of Wyoming and turn up in Colorado wouldn't surprise me in the least. What I don't like, though, is the idea that there's, that it, that there's this known breeding population that, vested in, that there's people with vested interest in concealing the idea of this thing, that it's, like it's meant to be kept secret. Because to, in this day and age, like, secrets don't get kept well. When they were down to having, they were down to having only a handful of, like, the Florida cougar. They were down to having a handful, but you couldn't keep from getting hit on the road. Like, things just have a way of turning up. And this is, like, my, one of many, my, kind of my favorite anti-Bigfoot argument. Right, where's the Sasquatch bones? Right? <laughs> would be that if you look at the way rare species just get killed and turned up dead and get shot by people whose livestock is get atta- getting attacked, chasing their kids, they shoot it, it gets hit by cars, it just dies, it turns up dead in the pond, whatever happens, it's like, even when we're down to like having some known quantity of things, we can't stop them from dying all over the place. So that when people talk about these wildlife populations, that there's no carcasses turning up anywhere, it becomes like hard to believe that the, the things, the necessary things are in place to do it. And the idea that, oh, they, if they catch them in Colorado, they bring them back to Wyoming, how is that going over with the state government in Wyoming? <laughs> Those guys are doing their damnedest to get rid of a handful are of them. Are they just launching them over the border <laughs> yeah. with a catapult? Yeah. Like, Here, take them back. <laughs> Callahan proposed the idea of yeah. an underground railroad for grizzly bears. <laughs> grizzly bears? <laughs> take, them, take them back. Yeah, I, I do, like, there's plenty of unknown out there with tons of large mammals that we feel extremely familiar with. Like, look at all the new data that's showing up on mule deer migration corridors. Like, like we just confirmed the longest mule deer migration. And that's an animal that most people would consider themselves extremely familiar with. The root of which is now looking to perhaps get riddled with... Yeah, uh, things that would then destroy that migration corridor. Um, But to jump to the point is... Like, look at, you know, all the data that we're getting off of these GPS collars. Um, a great one is uh, they had a collared sow grizz in Montana. Um, she covered an incredible amount of country and, and did some absolutely bizarre things, including uh, Flathead Lake in Montana is a huge body of water. It's seven miles long, two and a half miles wide at its widest point. And this grizz swam out to the dead center of the lake turned around, swam back. <laughs> Nobody ever saw this. Just wanted to see what was out there. Oh, no people, there was no eyewitness. No eyewitness. But it was just tracking data. It was data. just tracking data. And, you know, we'd never, nobody would ever be like, oh yeah, the Grizz is just going to swim out middle of the night in the middle of the lake, paddle around for a little bit, and then they do that all the time. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so there is quite a bit of unknown that I think uh, does, does go on. Yeah, and that's what makes it kind of beautiful. And like my goal, and we, we've talked about this a thousand times too. My goal is to, and most of the guys I hang out with would agree with it, would be like, my goal would be that we would recover grizzlies in all suitable habitat. 
the agreement falls apart when we discuss, like, well, define suitable, suitable habitat. habitat right. there's, there's a lot of people who know this issue very well, and they say, like, we've kind of done it except for the exception of one spot, perhaps two, and they're not here. Nobody likes raccoons in their garbage cans <laughs> in San Francisco. Yeah. When it's a 600-pound raccoon, it's probably going to be a bit more of an issue. Yeah, it's slightly unnerving. And being with your kids, like, you know, everyone wants to get their kids involved in the outdoors. To be out with little kids in places that have, like, a, like high densities of grizzlies, it's like this added thing. But, you know, what, 95% of Alaska, it's like they're dealing with it just fine. There's people up there, not many, but they're there. <laughs> Right there. Yeah. So <laughs> here's a startling grizzly statistic that uh, shows kind of the power of misguided humans. Um, let me find this. Between 1850 and 1920, grizzlies were extirpated from 95% of their historic range in the lower 48. Then from 1920 to 1970, they were extirpated from half of that. So you've got them whittled down to being on a couple percent, a couple percentage points of their native range, right? That's like, we, we had elk, we did, we did about the same to elk, and we've now recovered elk on 10%, 14% of their native range. They're still absent from 90% of their native range. And we're still trying to make progress in that. And I just cannot, as, as much as I understand the complexities, the political aspects of it, what it means for the ag industry, everyone, as much as I see that, I'm like, I can't, I just can't accept that that's something that as human beings in America, that we can be okay with having something like that on the edge. So I just, you know, I'm not saying here, but if I did hear that someone turned one up in a definite sense, I wouldn't get that feeling like, oh no. I'd kind of like almost a little bit secretly be like, yeah. It's like it's all it's <laughs> you know? bringing wild back. Yeah, into, it's like it's country. awesome, man. It's There's like still... when a bison chalks up a head knock in Yellowstone. You're kind of like, all right. Yeah. Didn't a lady just get, that's yeah. the most common Yellowstone injury. I think a lady just got gored today or yesterday in Yellowstone. Yeah, yesterday, I think, yeah. When I was researching my Buffalo book, it was talking about um, a very common, in, uh, very common animal related injury. There would be a puncture wound to the upper buttocks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there's well, that states, one. So speaking, going back to grizzly bears and populations, uh, which states now have, uh, and restoration of species, which states now do we now have grizzly bear hunts coming on board here? Well, possibly two. Possibly two states will initiate grizzly hunts. Possibly, you know, I say possibly because who knows where litigation is going to go. come up. Idaho might do a tag, and Wyoming might do up to a couple dozen with female quotas built into it. And then they have, they, we've identified like recovery areas. So when we talk about like, if we say like, we should recover them on all suitable habitat, um, there's, this, there's this idea of what those suitable habitats are. Northern Cascades. So in, in Northern Washington, you have the Northern Cascade ecosystem. And Secretary Zinke recently came out and declared his support for recovering bears in Northern Cascades. Right now in the Northern Cascades in the U.S., there may be, maybe is one or two grizzlies there right now. They flirt with the border. Cabinet Yak, 
has 50. Yep. Selkirk's 80. Selkirk's have 80. Northern Continental Divide, a bunch. Northern Continental Divide has over 1,000. Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem has 800, possibly, possibly more in all these places because of how we count them. It's usually the, the number is usually the minimum. The upper end of the population, we don't really know. And then there's the one spot that we say we could get them or could have them and don't, and that's the Bitterroot. Well, the Yak as well. I mean, the Yak, Cabinet Yak Wilderness is, I, I believe, the least visited wilderness area in the lower 48. Um, we used to hunt black bears in it. Man, you'd like stumble into grizzlies and there's only 50 of them. Yeah, so, I mean, we've recorded 50 bears there. Or is that an, ex- we've recorded X amount and extrapolated that out to 50? Right. It's extrapolated Usually out. Because what people are generally looking at is you're looking at female home ranges, and then you, you kind of like based off sexually mature females, how much area do they need? You make these like these basic map shapes where you put in like known females. What would their range be? And then just from general dynamics, you understand the ratio of cubs and males and you model it out. It's not like someone goes up and goes one, two, three, four, five and gets to 50. When people have a birthday, my kids like to go, are you one? Are you two? And they call my older brother, man, they get old. <laughs> By the time they got up to the right number. But yeah, they don't, like, they're not counting them. But, and you get into that area, and this is like the last thing I'm going to say about it with this idea of like, because like right now there's a lot of talk where people in Colorado are toying with the idea, like, do we want to reintroduce wolves or let them trickle in? Because there's different sort of like social tolerances, right? To reintroduction and trickling in. And for a while, people talked about that we'll take grizzlies and cut grizzlies loose in the bitterroot. If we take them and reintroduce them into the bitterroot, they're going to have an experimental status. So not regulated as tightly because they were a reintroduction. And some grizzly advocates feel that it's better. Well, let's just let them walk in on their own, which is eventually going to happen anyway. Because if they walk in on their own, they carry with them full ESA protection. We had the idea, we were just going to make a barrel trap and put some in there just to get the whole thing over with, right? Uh, never got around to that, but it was like an idea we toyed with. Was, let's just push this along and get it to its logical conclusion. But um, it's, it's like a, a thing that you guys are wrestling with. And someone said today that they're like a, a government agent was saying he's highly, what was he saying? He, he doesn't think that Colorado would do a wolf reintroduction, right? Right. And he, I don't want to say who said this. Well, no, no, he, no, he, he said, said parks and wildlife is yeah, completely Yeah, there's official stance. Okay. That, but that's parks and wildlife. That's not the people who are actively trying to move towards reintroduction. Yeah. He said, he said Colorado, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, they show up on their own, they're welcome here. Yeah. <laughs> what's your take Cody Giannis recently tell me what did the guy say to you recently if you're a big game hunter well, yeah, how can you be for like if you're a big yeah, game hunter how could you possibly like, yeah, why be pro predator at all because the more you know the less predators the more big game we have to hunt as big game hunters what's your take hey you know it's a uh, it's a tough one. It's, you know, I'm kind of an in, I'm going to take the easy route and be an in-betweener here, but uh, I, I love having apex predators in one, in one sense. It's these big wild animals that are back in wild country. That's, there's nothing more beautiful or 
that you can think of. On the other hand, you think of the state of our current mule deer population in Colorado, you think of our elk population, we're always a winter or two away from major winter kill. What happens if we have a huge apex predator population explosion, you know, a couple of big wolf packs step into your favorite elk hunting unit, and then you have a winter kill on top of that? Then, then, what, then what's going on? Then all of a sudden we have a big problem. So, um, you know, from a few different perspectives. Not a problem uh, for the wolves. Not a problem for the wolves. I mean, Colorado's a smorgasbord, man. <laughs> I mean, if you, look at, yeah, if you look at what we've got going on here in Colorado, I mean, this is the ideal target for wolves and, and grizzlies. I mean, we're covered up with animals. We're a pretty special state. So selfishly, I, I, I agree with that, you know. I don't want these animals killing my deer and elk and wiping out my herds, and maybe there's a little ignorance in that statement. But on the other hand, you know, I love wild, these wild places and wild things. So, it, you know, you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah, I remember when elk, when, when wolves came into the areas that we hunt elk after, like what happened very quickly after the Yellowstone reintroductions. I remember a guy that we would bump into in, in our elk hunting area. He would... Be, he would kind of like get worked up about it, but he'd be like, you know, you got to share though. Got to share, got to share. <laughs> <laughs> like walking them through. But the thing that I come back to, man, is like you look into sort of like, you try, like try to like look into your own heart. And I remember the first wolf track I saw, man, I was ecstatic. Not for what it meant. Not like, oh, what is this going to mean down the road for tag allocations? And, but just in the immediate moment, right? In the immediate moment, there's sort of this really satisfying, like, holy shit. That was the moment the I had track. last year. And when I take people to hunt in Alaska, they, always, the thing that they always say, always, I hope we see a, a wolf. Yep. Or a... Or a grizzly. <laughs> it's just like always, well, man. Exactly. And I mean, that's what's so funny. People travel to Alaska. All right, to go see I them. hope yeah. I see or a wolf. Going to Jack's and going yeah. to the park, you know. I was sitting in uh, Frank Church Wilderness uh, with a buddy of mine who was working in there uh, with a big outfit. There was, uh, it was pretty fun. We were in this pup tent at the end. There was like the big wall tent, nice wall tent, cook tent. There's a nice wall tent for the clients, another nice wall tent for the clients, and then it's like you guide bums, figure it out. And uh, the remudas out there... Uh, you know, corral full of hot fence, uh, uh, mules and uh, horses, and they're kind of talkative all night, and they're pawing the ground, frozen ground, you know, it's really loud, and uh, it's full moon, just like, you know, you're in a glowing tent in a full moon, and can't sleep, and uh, first wolf howl I ever heard, wolf cuts loose, and everybody goes dead silent, and I would easily trade a freezer full of elk meat for that moment. Yeah. I mean, that was a special, special moment. Another thing I return to when I think about this, and I feel like it's a point I brought up before, is why, like, the guys that are just dead set anti predator across the board, why do those guys all want to hunt in Alaska so bad? <laughs> I said, you wouldn't like it at all. There's big stuff running around, all toothy, crazy stuff running around everywhere. But I think that people would answer is there, Alaska guards very jealously, jealously its right to do predator management. So they've got a nice balance. And I think that some people fear, probably quite rightfully so, 
Some people fear that if, if wolves get very like heavily established in Colorado, if, if you know, in, in a decade, we're talking about grizzlies being like absolutely established in Colorado, that there's the idea that, that like politically and socially, the state fishing game agency isn't going to have any latitude to do management to, to like factor in various stakeholders in, in the conversation. I think if people, if, if people knew that this will happen, these animals will come, when they come, we will have management authority and we will manage with deer hunters, elk hunters, all people in mind and find like a good balance, I think that people's tensions wouldn't be as high. I mean, all they got to do is look to Montana, right? I mean, has, is it, has it been a doomsday scenario up there for you hunting elk? Not at all. And they got, as, they got I mean, they, they found that as much as it was going to be that Montana having a wolf season was going to be the end of wolves, they found it ain't that easy. Yeah, what no. did these wolves do? They got smart. Oh, yeah, well, I you're mean, still I finding elk, too. What's that? You're still finding elk, too. Yeah, plenty. I've got as good at elk hunting up there as I did in Colorado. And there's this beautiful time in there where people are so used to blaming wolves that they actually cease to hunt. And if yeah. you're out there hunting, it is like the best elk hunting on the planet. And all you have to do is be like, oh, yeah, it's full of wolves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I've run into guys who were like in their truck and had given up because they caught in a wolf track. But you know what? That guy would have given up no matter what. He'd give up because his wife's mad at him. He'd give exactly. up. It's like <laughs> something's going to make him give up. Uh, does anybody else have anything on, on wolves or grizzlies? Yeah. Oh, please. You saw a grizzly in Colorado. You, they are, they're all named Old Something. Yeah. Can you name them, Cody? Oh, man, we'll call this one the Old Luhansky. The what? The Old Lujanski. So, oh. keep it in the family name. You can name them after yourself. Yeah. No, I'm just trying to. <laughs> <laughs> There's no. What are you going to name it? Something like that. A ghost grizzly. You know? Yeah. you know, it's an old ghost grizzly. Except this one wasn't old. C, uh, CPW, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, they do have a form, right? Have you looked yeah, at it? a grizzly sighting form. They have yeah. a grizzly sighting form, which, like, if you got this, they don't have a Bigfoot sighting form. <laughs> <laughs> do they? Well, Bigfoot's blurry, right? Yeah, big, yeah was it blurry? Yes yeah, or no? Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's like, they got a form, man. There's a reason that people make forms. So if you guys out there see one, go fill out the form. And he said that the uh, a warden we talked today said he wasn't comfortable with the idea that they investigate possible sightings, but right. they, he used like a, a, a look sort into of, it. They'll look that? into it. What did he use? Look into it. Yeah, he didn't want to say like quite, like I wouldn't say we investigate, we look into it. Don't worry about it. Checks yeah, in the we'll, mail. We'll, we'll think about it. Yeah. <laughs> So there's that. Now, another Colorado news piece that I want to get into. Can you, um, can you lay out the gore range? I think Giannis I'll give some gore should, since he spent so much time. Well, I can do it. But Giannis is like the gore range expert here. I did a little bit of hunting in there. But. Um, a lot of you guys are probably, I'm sure some of you have been up there. There is the gore range that runs from Vail north towards Steamboat. There's uh, Gore Pass, which goes between uh, Breckenridge and Vail. There's Gore Creek that runs from Vail down into the Eagle River. There's Gore Canyon on the Colorado River near Kremling. 
Did I say Gore Pass? Gore Pass. Gore Pass is actually Taponis Kremlin. And there's this gentleman, British gentleman, that spent a lot of time. You should talk Lower about the his rampage. In, in my yeah. notes, the top yeah. of my notes is Gore is what you might call an asshole. Now, <laughs> how, how many people here know like the Gore? Like Gore has everything named after him. You guys know who Gore was? The story of Gore. Lord okay. Gore. So, what, what's that? <laughs> Al Gore had the internet. Oh, not Al Gore. <laughs> so, so. Uh, this is something we've discussed in the past with like Laramie. So Laramie has got how much stuff named after him. Laramie shows up. He's like kind of a mountain man. No one knows anything about him except he was named Laramie. And the minute he showed up in Wyoming was killed and stuffed through the hole in a frozen beaver pond. The dude winds up with half the state named after him. Okay. So Gore, here's Gore. So Gore is a, he's an Irish Lord. So he's the aristocracy comes west in the 1850s to go on a little hunting trip. Now, an interesting fact about this is Gore figured he was going to come up through New Orleans and come up the Mississippi and then go up the Missouri. But he gets word from a Mormon missionary in London to avoid New Orleans due to a cholera and malaria outbreak, lands in New York instead. He is packing with him. 75 rifles, a dozen shotguns, a brass bed, a steel bathtub featuring his personal crest. He travels with his own personal fly tire. It takes dozens of carts and wagons to haul Gore's hunting equipment. He makes his way out to the Platte River where he hires Jim Bridger, famed mountain man Jim Bridger, to be his hunting guide. And they set to kill him. And they kill for two years. Uh, They hunt the Arkansas. They hunt the South Platte. They get up to Montana. They hunt the Tongue, the Powder. They hunt the Yellowstone. Gore likes to sleep till 10. (laughs) Then he likes to get up and hunt until after dark. By his own calculations, he kills 2,500 buffalo, which he leaves to rot, 105 bears, perhaps 40 of which were grizzlies. He kills 1,600 deer and elk. Indians are going to their Indian agents to complain about this particular individual's waste of resources. Even Jim Bridger gets sick of him. Eventually, everyone's mad at the guy. His trip's coming to an end. He goes down to Fort Union on the Missouri, and he wants to sell his gear to the James Kipp who ran the fort there. James Kipp gives him what he perceives to be a shitty offer. Now, a lot of guys might. Brody, you've been in the guiding business. How many of you guys have all guided? Everyone here is guided. Rich clients give you stuff. Am I not? Is this right? Like, oh, here's my binoculars, Sonny. I mean, doesn't this happen? Sure. Real hard to convert that into gasoline. Yes. I have found. But it's a thing, right? It's a thing that happens. You give your guide stuff, not Gore. Gore is offended by the offer. And at Fort Union, he, and this is witnessed by many, he starts a giant pyre and burns every single thing that he had brought with him. Out of spite, he burns Conestoga wagons. He burns freight wagons. He burns Red River carts. He burns a silk tent. He burns all of his carpets. 
He burns his down-filled pillows. He had brought over an Indian rubber rubber raft that no one had ever seen. He throws that on the fire and burns it. He burns his meteorological equipment. He burns his entire personal library. Bridger, later in his life, talked about Gore, and the part of the story that interested Bridger was that Gore introduced him to Shakespeare. Gore would read Bridger's Shakespeare at night, but he burns all of his Shakespeare texts. He had kept meticulous journals through his whole journey. He burns his journals. <laughs> Hands Jim Bridger 750 bucks and leaves only with his hunting trophies. Then he winds up with a mountain range, a mountain pass, a canyon, lake, creek, and wilderness area that he never stepped foot in named after him. Yep. Which violates even the government's idea. Like, explain like what it is that you're supposed to do. Oh, you you ta- you can you can do that better than me. Like like to, to like you well, have to have you have to, to, I mean, to get a place named you'd after you. Be an American citizen first, right? Be helpful. <laughs> um, you go discover. You go explore something. You map it out. Meaningful you, contribution. You give people useful information that are going to be there at some point in the future, and someone says, "Hey." That guy did a good job. Let's name that mountain after him. But Gore just gets it out of sheer inertia. Right. But there's a petition that Brody was talking about. Now this is your, your area of expertise. Yeah. So this is the day and age where we're kind of conscious of our history and mistakes we've made in the past and names that shouldn't have been named. And so there's a movement to rename, to wipe Gore's name off the face of Colorado's mountainsides. And... Uh, I'm not sure how much traction it's gaining, but... You can sign the petition. You can sign the petition. Yep, yep. And I believe what they want... It's the Shining Mountains is what they... They would like the Ute to name them, but a name that's been proposed is the general term for the Rockies, which would have been the Shining Mountains. Yeah. The lab In the Lab Eagle He spent a lot of time in there. Uh, A couple more quick facts about Gore. It was the most expensive, expensive hunting e- expedition ever mounted at the time. And Gore never cocked his own rifle. Oh, really? So I'd be like, Cal, cock my rifle. Now I'm going to shoot. <laughs> you know, uh, it, reading about his thing, it's reminiscent. So like Gore like, winds up being a villain, right? Like we now perceive him as a villain. And, and oftentimes, like I'm the, guy, I'm the kind of guy that oftentimes when I hear like, oh, we're going to rename something because of our contemporary perspective. Oftentimes, it, I, I get a little uncomfortable feeling because I don't think it always works to take a contemporary notion of morality and like a, 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 like a sophisticated, progressive sense of morality and apply it to people 200 years ago who probably in their own time were progressive. Right. But, it, but, they, 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 but it'll never keep up. Like, you're always going to find something. And so the more you go back and analyze, you're, you're looking at people who further times were like, outstand, like regarded as outstanding individuals with really sophisticated thoughts about human rights and sophisticated thoughts about what we ought to be doing and how we ought to be as a nation and what our aspirations and goals should be. But there's this blemish. And we, we, we fixate on the blemish and it kind of stuff makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, but Gore, that- in his own time... Was hated. Was hated. But maybe you don't... Maybe, maybe you leave that name there to just remind you, like, hey, man, don't do that. Yeah. You know? Well, that's don't. what I'm thinking. Like, Colorado school kid, 
What an amazing lesson. Be like, oh, Gore Peak. Wonder how that got named. Gonna yeah. look this guy up. I mean, and you learn about like the rapacious quality of man. Yeah. Because otherwise, it, like, and that's got to stick with you. The Shining Mountains is a great name, but then no school kid ever learns about gore because it's wiped off the face of the map, right? So I don't know. Yeah, like maybe there should be one of those interpretive highway signs that just says like, "Hey, an asshole hunted here." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I don't do you, know, man. Do you think there were people at the time being like, boy, that's terrible, but he's creating a lot of jobs. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I don't know about it because here's the thing. We all love Roosevelt, right? And if you want to go find, if you want to find a guy that was up to that, go read a little bit about Roosevelt's when he got out of office and he did his big African safari. Right. No difference. No difference. But he, right, was, oh, that was just how they did things back then. Because he wound up doing us some good turns. So even our interpretation of morality is sort of like, is influenced by all these other things where we're, you know, like his Africa trip, when anyone, anyone that describes his Africa trip, they can't, any writer that talks about it can't help but having the giant list of all the crazy stuff he packed. Quite similar to the list I gave a minute ago. But he's our great hero. So I don't know. The packing list for River of Doubt. Yeah. Extensive? My God. I mean, you could almost call him Gore with a conscience, right? Like he came around at the end. You believe so? He died single. I don't know. I mean, well, he did a lot for us, right? Conservation-wise. Oh, Gore, Roosevelt. Roosevelt being Gore he with a came, He came around, yeah. Okay, so let's say this. There's a single reference there. The what? Go <laughs> <laughs> Cal died single. <laughs> oh. Just point out. I don't know. I think that, I, the, like, one history of Gore that I read, the writer took some level of satisfaction in the fact that he died alone. The, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> If he was like, he might have been, but you know what? In the end, he died alone, so he must have had a good life. Uh, You know, I don't know. I'm just like, the the writer took says, it wasn't meant as a dig. I was just wondering. Um, Okay, so let me say this. You are, you are commander of the universe. And on your daily docket of decisions is, hey, should we change the Gore Range to the Shining Mountains? And you just got to, you know, you got so much to do that day. You got to make a snap decision. They need to know right now they're making the new signs. Do you do it or not? <laughs> oh, man. Before we had this conversation, I was all for changing, you know, but now I'm rethinking it. You're rethinking it? Um, I can't tell you how many times I heard Yana say, I was back in the gore. Yeah. I was back in the shining mountains. That sounds good. It does. But there's nothing wrong with the gore either. But when you know the history of it, it kind of stinks, right? But now I'm conflicted because I'm, I'm wondering if we should be changing those little blemishes or do we leave them just to remind yeah, ourselves? I mean, in, in my mind, there's the a gap man. here. The, the gap being, why did they name it after him? We know it's named after him, but I guess maybe I'm missing something here, but I don't know why they named it. Was it because he came and did all these amazing expeditions and created a name for himself or because he was an... There's Ass an explanation or... for how it started to happen, but it's not satisfactory. Okay. It, it wasn't them being like, man, that was a good guy. Right. He was cool. 
It wasn't like that. Be like it was just more of an issue peoples. of convenience. They're naming a lot of things at the time, right? So he came along at the right time, was kind of notorious, and they said, you're the man. Yeah. Okay. All right. Rolls off your tongue. The gore. This morning, I was forward changing. Now, here I am, master of the universe. What was the title? Commander of the universe. Commander of the universe. Keep it. That's my official make the sign. Keep it. I, I'm, I'm with you. Like, it's, it's, where, it's what it is, you know? You can't erase history by changing the name, and you shouldn't want to, right? Yeah. You shouldn't try and cover it up. I don't know, man. man. Callahan? Learning opportunity. This is similar to the issues that are going on in New Mexico with regard to monuments that were named after famous Spanish conquistadors that committed horrible atrocities against Native Americans and Pueblans. And, um, you know, do you keep these because that was an important part of history or do you change them because this guy was such an ass and did so many bad things to so many bad Slavery people. and genocide were just tools in the right. toolkit back right. then. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah. I mean, do you, you know, these issues are being looked at all over the place right now. I say change it. Change it. Hell yeah. Okay. I've called it the gore my entire life. Commander but, Cody. Commander it's Cody. It's interesting. I saw him live. That's a band, yeah. Commander Cody. Hot Rod Lincoln. Wow. He opened up for Steppenwolf. Step, yeah. What? Wow. All right. Uh, can we? Are we ready to move on? Yeah. That'd be cool. I'm cool. cool. No one. No one. Anything more? No. Yeah, you good? I'm good. Okay. Now, what's going on? I'm just checking the time. What are we doing? Good. Do you think it's immoral? Do you think it's immoral or or, or what's the opposite of immoral? Is it immoral or okay? <laughs> to Shoot a bedded deer. I'll go with okay. Okay. Can you give me your thinking on why it's okay? Um, well, I think I have to lay out why some people would say maybe it's not okay first. Sure. Right? You want to agree that? Agree that that would be important? No, I think it's a fine approach. Okay. You're going to say it's okay and tell us why it's not. <laughs> or why some might view it as not. Yeah, because I think if you don't have the context of that, then why even have this conversation? Understood. But I think that, well, there's two reasons I think a lot of people say it's not okay to shoot a better deer or whatever big game animal. Uh, one being that you're not seeing like the, the body sort of stretched out and, and you're not able to identify exactly where the vitals are and, and where exactly you should place your bullet or arrow, right? The other one being that somehow you've caught an animal sleeping or off guard and that um, you're at such an advantage that you should feel, I guess, morally bad about it and that you should like give the animal a pass because it's taking a break. Yes. That's my, that's my right? understanding. Are those the main two reasons why people are sort of not... not yeah, I like I almost see that as a sportsmanship thing. Like you're not supposed to shoot a duck off the water, right? Yeah. Like some, somewhere in there. Yeah. We've all decided that's okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I say it's okay because, um, one, I feel like if you know an, an, the an, anatomy enough and if you have a, like a, a rifle or whatever uh, weapon with enough uh, power, 
the, and you, you know that the vitals, the, you can still place that bullet right where it needs to go, even when it's, you know, crouched up and bedded. And as far as, like, it, giving it a pass because you caught it sleeping, you should be considered, like, an excellent hunter because you snuck up to a bedded animal because everybody knows that, like, okay, every now and then, sure, you catch one that's actually asleep. But more than likely, when they're bedded, they're still aware or, or the one next to them is aware. Nobody's actually completely as, asleep on the job, right? It's not like you caught, like, the platoon sleeping. You snuck in there and got the jump on everybody, yeah, right? Yeah. So I, I think when you, sneak into, <laughs> when you sneak into a bunch of bedded deer or, or just one, you should be considered an exceptional hunter with exceptional skills. Yeah. And, and not, not, be, not be said that somehow you got over on one. I, I feel I feel you on that. And remember, we met a guy that was kind of the opposite, where his wife didn't want to eat meat from animals that looked at him. <laughs> right. I do remember that. She's like, she'd be like, "Did it look at you?" Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Right. So it didn't matter if it was better or not. No, that was her thing. It became it became rather than saying like, "Oh no, you snuck up on this thing and it's bedded down." Her thing would be like, just from looking at it like a sort of an outsider perspective, be like, well, once it's aware of you and staring at you, you've kind of like lost, like something went wrong there and, and, and it wasn't like you, you know. You've said that before though, like you prefer to shoot animals that have no idea you're there. Way prefer it. Way prefer it. Like when I'm, t- like, it's in everybody's story. You had no idea. It's like people love yeah. that part of the story. Yeah, man. Not aware that I was there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start whistling first, just to let him know. <laughs> Get him to stand up. Chance. Well, you know, like Kevin Murphy blows the horn right when he starts his hunt, before he starts the hunt. <laughs> the guy that wrote in about this, do you want to know? I, I hesitated at first to even share this detail. His dad was so opposed to shooting. Do you know what I'm talking about? His father is so opposed to shooting a bedded deer that his father once found a wounded deer that had been hit by a car and he had kind of watched it around their property. He kept trying to catch it on its feet, but it would always cut through their property and lay down. So it's already wounded, and he's basically trying to put it down, but also be able to eat it before it goes bad. He goes and gets a Red Rider BB gun to shoot the deer to get it to stand up to then shoot it with a muzzleloader. <laughs> This guy writes in a letter explaining this and saying, what's your take on it? <laughs> wow. Give it a fighting chance. Give it a yeah. fighting chance, yeah. Uh, I, I, hunting with you. Yeah, we, you know, we ran into that scenario in New Mexico on a pronghorn hunt. Yeah, and I crawled you know, up on an antelope and shot in the bed and heard all, kind, caught all to, kinds of shit about it. Yeah, and prior to that, I mean, it was actually a pretty cool stock. It was really open country, and we had a herd of cattle just come blasting through and it was the provided the only bit of cover for the first part of the stock and then you went in and belly crawled and finished this amazing stock got into out in the middle of i mean there's grass about this tall and then you just caught a ration of shit yeah crawling around in the hot ass sun right that was dragging my rifle behind me cactus thorns all up and down and it was like you weren't manly right because it was laying down it's like come on man so, so what is your take? Would, would you My do it? take is uh, I have uh, taken animals, and some of the best stocks in my life have been totally creeping up on an animal and killing its bed. On the flip side of that, I have had animals lost with me um, by somebody shooting an animal and uh, not hitting the animal right when it was bedded. 
because they yeah, they, I have had that happen. And uh, just this past year, I had that happen. It cost a family member of mine a bull. And uh, so on a, bedded, on a bedded bull elk. So it happens. So if you know what you're doing and you feel confident with it and you are going to own your shot and you've completed that stock, I think you go for it. If you're not confident with it and the animal's not laid just right, don't take the shot. Callahan? Yeah, and I... It's so hard, and I, I always have a hard time with folks who are like, absolutely 100%, this is the only way you can do it. Because honey's just not that way. That's why I love it. It's got no end to the variables, right? There's animals and animal, it does what it wants, and the conditions are unknown. So uh, my general rule of thumb is no. Do not. Really? The client, though. Really? It compresses. Commander of the universe. Compresses the area. Um, you have more, I, I feel like your odds increase of uh, destroying good meat and patience kills, man. Just wait for that thing to stand up, put it through both lungs, minimal meat loss, done deal. Yes, Dash. <laughs> <laughs> now that being said, you know, <laughs> You can very, very well find that scenario where everything is perfect, the animal's bedded, and you have just that beautiful window through the vitals, and and it's great. But yeah, generally, I, I say do not shoot. Wait, are you coming from the client perspective, what you're telling clients, or you individually here? I, I typically hold off myself. Yep. Yeah. What about with a client? No go. 100% no, of the time, no. Brody? Well, before Callahan spoke up, I was going to say I prefer to shoot everyone bedded, but um, <laughs> the only shot I'll take. Um, I had to wait a while for it to bed down. Yep. <laughs> now I got to think about it. I, I mean, I, I have shot, you know, I, I shot a bull elk at less than 20 yards with the rifle bedded down, and he was just as surprised as I was when I... <laughs> um, but now Cal's like got me all feeling guilty about it. So, you know, uh, you're on your personal journey. Yeah. You know, you know what people say like to people like go yeah or no and they just measure the volume when you're doing like an audience survey? I don't want to do or measuring the volume. I just want for, for when I put this to, to, to the audience test, I just want you to say, yep, like that loud. <laughs> Not all kinds of screaming, just a nice yep. Uh, would you change uh, okay all those in favor of switching the gore range to the shining mountain range say yep, yep. all those in favor of it keeping its name yep. huh. all those that think it's okay to shoot an, a deer say in its bed say yep yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. They progressively got louder, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know shit about shit. Uh, Cheering for your team. <laughs> okay, so we have uh, at, at you know at the Meat Eater podcast, we have a man who's kind of emerged as as what I like to call our uh, philosopher in residence. Where does this guy, this dude, Luke Ryan, who happens to be with us here tonight, who? Uh, sends in all these kind of like really perplexing 
hunting questions, ethics questions, enough to where it, like I started to take notice of this fella, that he, uh, he really knows how to get in there and grapple with some of the, 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 the hunting conundrums. And like I said, he's in attendance tonight. And he had this question, which is an interesting idea. is like, what winds up being your shot to kill ratio in big game hunting? Pointing out that a one-to-one ratio, meaning you, know, every, you, you, you kill an animal with every shot you fire, might not be the most ethical ratio because in some things it might be that the minute you if, if you hit an animal for purposes of having a quick humane kill you might quickly follow it up with a second shot in order to ensure that it's going to like die really quickly so bragging a one-to-one might not be as good as if you had like a, a higher ratio because you just want to sure to like put them on the ground quickly and efficiently in the case of hunting something like moose or elk so what is your shot to kill shots fired to animals killed ratio uh 1.3 1.3 but lifetime no i just was i just running through in my i just like ran some calculations from like a year from the last year that's where i'm because at. i mean i haven't like i haven't like kept the i haven't like tracked the data but i'll point out that last year Big aim hunting. The only time I shot twice, the first one would have been fine. I just happened to shoot twice. I mean, it's like a fog knack. Like a shot. And That's not true. You don't think so? <laughs> Which buck? Oh no, you're right. Yeah. So like 1.7 or whatever, 1.4. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, I bet you everyone that they think about it, the number will grow. <laughs> let me, okay, let me let me put it let, let me put it this way. Let me put it in a more conservative way. It's not two. Right. <laughs> Between one and two. It's is not this, two. Is this big game only, or is we counting small game too? No, you're not counting like hunting ducks. No. There's more. <laughs> Real quick. Okay, quickly give us the last part. Yeah, I got you. Saying if you miss, you got to count it. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't have that problem. Um, <laughs> it w- yeah, it would be like not two. Not two. Yanni's running very high right now. <laughs> yeah, Giannis had some Western hunts. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, three on my coups, two each on my last two antelope. Last cow was two. Last five squirrels were three apiece. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. So yeah, what, what does that give me? That You're plus me, two. Yeah, I'm plus two. Cody? I'll just go with Colorado last year. One on my muley buck. One on my pronghorn buck. Because you missed your mu- muley buck before that. Though. That's what I heard. Oh, my gun didn't fire. Uh, what does so that, that count? Did you pull the trigger? <laughs> oh, yeah, you said you pulled the trigger. Yeah, I pulled the trigger, and I didn't even get a click or anything. <laughs> okay, so, so does like, that count? Okay, so that doesn't count. That doesn't count. 
And then uh, two on my bull, I pulled the, I shot him and he didn't move. So I immediately shot him again and just to be sure and walked up there and two, two vital shots. So four shots, three animals. Okay. Now let's hear Cal's amazingly known, Cal's <laughs> 0.75, yeah. like amazingly low number. Yeah, this is good. This is humbling. Bull one. Mule deer one. Bull negative four. <laughs> what does that mean? I, I, at the time, I was like, I am inexplicably missing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's not true. The fact of the matter is, is I have quite ignorantly have just not been shooting as much as I used to. And I, my rifle skills have clearly fallen off the map. So I did, uh, went back home to Montana on our real misery hunt and uh, found another nice bull in there and missed, missed three times, not four times, missed three times. Okay. At sub 200 yards. Callahan. Yeah. Are you I hearing this? I can give this? you all the scenarios, but that's not the question. I can give you the full meal deal, but I missed three times, under 200 yards. Okay. And I had a, here is the bull, because it was so confused that it ran directly at me, and now it's at 40 <laughs> yards. <laughs> and I'm like, well, now... Only a jackass would miss. <laughs> and I had the safety on and did the huh. <laughs> How had I not heard the story? It was saving it. Well, it's, yeah, it's not a good story. And it got away. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it got away, gone. I mean, it was the full, the, I told you about that, huh? It was like 30 mile an hour winds the whole time. Yeah, but the wind no, wasn't you a did. factor because we did, were down in me. this hell hole and the driving snow. And I had all the time in the world. I had my pack down in like two feet of snow. So I was basically like sitting on a couch. <laughs> <laughs> I had deadfall in front of me. I had a perfect rest. And I was like, just take your time. Just take your time. Just take your time. And one of those, yeah. <laughs> and I did. And I missed. Over a course of period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Brady? <laughs> Hold on, but the, the gun was off, right? No. It wasn't. No, no, no. This was off. So you lost, I got lost in the numbers somewhere. So you're running a plus two, absolutely. <laughs> so six. An arrow, bull, one bullet for the mule deer. Three misses on another bull, which I did feel bad about. I'm not like a math genius. Like, hey, I'm not a math genius here, but like <laughs> two animals, seven shots, right? three. You like divide this into this, and yeah, so these are like three point three. Yeah, there Brody? you go. Uh, a cow moose, one shot. Mule deer buck, one shot. Cow elk, three shots. They all hit her, but it was three shots to. To end it. <laughs> Is that the end? That's it. 
for last Sub year. Two. But I feel like Sub one two. year is such a small sample size, too. Okay, right. can we move on? Yeah, if you do, you're, yeah, you're solid with sub two. Yeah, comfortable. Uh, I think there's years I was probably more in Cal's range. So. <laughs> Thanks, Luke. This guy starts out by saying, "I have absolutely zero axes to grind." So I'm like, "Tell me more." Um, he goes on to ask this. Uh, he's going out west. He's from Georgia. Going out west on his first big time Wild West hunting trip, which he says he does not want it to get squirrely. Um, what is a specific pronghorn? He's going on an antelope hunt. Pronghorn antelope hunt. He's like, he wants to know a specific piece of pronghorn antelope hunting gear. Not like just general universal gear, but antelope gear. Knee pads. Ooh, yeah. Oh, does knee everybody pad. get to pick one? Everybody gets to pick one. I'm doing knee pads. Antelope specific. Yeah, I like it. Construction knee pads. Um, since I saw you do this, I'm going to go with bipod. Ooh, yeah, well played, well played. Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, optics, you know, binos. With universal gear. Yeah. You're talking specific he little niche gear. So. Not normal general gear. I feel like bipod's specific enough, right? It's specific enough. I'm, I accept yeah. that answer. So do Thank I have to you. go like a t- pair of 12 or 15, 12 power binos? There we go. 12 power binos. Yep. Sunscreen. <laughs> I was going to say like a buff. But sunscreen kind of. 13 bullets. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'll add another one, man, and and we've done this uh, is a white handkerchief. Flag. Kind of amazing. Just for flagging. Just doing this. You want to see him go whoop? And they'll oftentimes be like, huh? Is that legal everywhere? (laughs) I don't know if it's legal or illegal. How could it be illegal? I, I can't it's picture being illegal, illegal to be like to be like, dude. I just was uh, getting my hanky out. I was just giving him a heads up. Like a safety aspect too. Like, there's something white moving over. Oh shit! I shot Steve Rinella. <laughs> <laughs> the single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys, next to my scatter gun, is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them 
to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. We got time for a couple more. We got a couple more? Yeah. We got also got to do our closers. Here's a quick question. <laughs> but I don't think you guys are going to have any perspective on this question. A guy writes in, and he says, I guess this is in keeping with your having eaten coyotes. Have you any advice or experience with the common carp? There is a lot of meat on those puppies. Um, (laughs) I I have. like We've cooked and eaten common carp. I've smoked them, ground them up for patties. It... uh, It winds up being that, like, it's absolutely edible... A lot of people from a lot of cultures raise them for the purpose. And he's talking about common, like, you know, Eurasian carp. Raise them for the purpose, or European carp. Raise them for the purpose of food. You're fine. It's edible, all that. But after, when I eat them, I don't come away from it being like, man, I cannot wait to go get another carp. <laughs> and so that's like a, to me, that's this whole classification of wild game. It's like, I ate it. It didn't hurt. Um, not dying to do it again. 
and I put common carp in that category. Any experience? Haven't. If you have no experience, can you do me a favor? Try it. Can you, um, no, no, not that. <laughs> can you tell me what sort of like the latest wild game dish you've been on to that you're like, this is what people ought to be cooking? That they might not be aware of. No, they could be aware of it, but it's like what you're on. Because you made me a very good moose heart taco two nights ago. Yeah, can that be my answer? That could be your thing. Lay it out. Okay. Um, yeah, I did a moose heart, moose heart and an elk heart. We really didn't need both, but um, kind of carved them up, got them down to nothing but meat. You know, there's a lot of connective tissue and silver skin on hearts. But oh, so you trimmed all that off? Yeah. I typically I, do not. I had to, you know, make dinner for the boss, so. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, well, once you get that stuff off of there, the gristle and veins and fat and silver skin, it's like very dense kind of soft meat. And I just cut it in strips, marinated it in uh, olive oil, lime juice, carne asada seasoning, grilled it rare, threw it on some tacos. With all kinds of toppings. Yeah, gr- like uh, charred some peppers and onions on the grill to go on it, some queso fresco. I think that was about it. Herbs. Or, yeah, cilantro. Yeah. It's just like a fre- fresh summer meat. Yeah. I, well, I was so worried about overcooking it that some of it was definitely undercooked, but I'd rather go that direction than yeah. overcooked. Yeah, like you still kind of feel it going fine. like this it in your mouth. <laughs> I was like, da-dum, da-dum. But my kids ate it, which I, I, you know, and you guys, I didn't hear any grumbling, so. Oh, I love mine. We're man. all here today. It's great. But a, a moose heart, it's like, a guy actually, like, I posted a picture of the elk heart and the moose heart. He's like, you should have posted a picture of a deer heart for us Eastern guys for size perspective. And I said, I replied to him, I said, fist, two fist, child's head. <laughs> like, it's kind of the perspective. I, I want to back up on carp real quick, because yeah. I one time did it a Scoffier recipe with carp where you cut the carp's head and tail off. Then you debone and you flay it, like debone all the meat. And you grind the meat up and mix it with butter and breadcrumbs and all kinds of other good things to eat. And you reform the carp's body out of this. Stick the head and tail back onto it. It's make like, scales with truffles. It's like food taxidermy. Yep. You rescale the carp with sliced truffles and then eat it. That is good carp. <laughs> Sounds like it. I don't know. <laughs> can you make that next time we? Was that? Can you make that next time we go carp fishing? I could do it again. I could do it. It takes like about three days. Yeah, what's the truffle <laughs> budget? Um, carp. I feel like anything when the water's super cold is edible, and this is a flawed theory. Uh, and then you know, summertime carp, they're in. To me, like boiling hot water out yeah. there in the back bays, and and that just does not seem palatable in any way, shape, or form. But you know, I was in Panama over the winter, and that water's always warm, and those fish taste great. Yeah, that's a good point. But people do have that; they're good in the winter. I grew up hearing that. Yeah, about suckers. But I made a uh, one kind of fun fish 
thing, you know, my I'd always try one extra thing. I had a uh, brown trout ate a streamer a little too deep and kept the brown trout that I had not, I only say that because I just hadn't intended to have trout that night, kind of rearranged the menu and uh, did the trout on blue. Trout blue? Yeah, so uh, if you don't know what this is, it's, it's basically you take some aromatics and uh, white vinegar and water, get that to a high sizzle and just slide the trout in there. Well, when I gutted this brown trout, it had a liver that was like this big. I mean, it was like two big thumbs doubled up. And I threw that liver in there and it was not to be missed. It was fantastic. It was good. Yep. In the old days when they made true tall blue or blue trout, I'm saying it horribly, and the, uh, it, was, it was essential that you put a live trout because its skins would turn an extra vibrant blue. But that just doesn't feel quite right. And guts in, obviously. So. You, you, yeah, you get the vinegar broth, because what it is is like the skin turns blue for some reason I'll never understand. Um, but if you want it to be really blue, you, put, you slip live trout into the boiling elixir, which is just one of those, it's like gore, right? There's just some things. <laughs> There's just some things we don't do anymore, kids. <laughs> oh, man. No carp. My last name is Lujan, so clearly tacos are pretty big in my household. So I love a red chili taco and uh, just a really good, um, some of the prime cuts from either pronghorn or elk and uh, some good ground red chili from northern New Mexico and uh, some flour. and You get the mixture right in your pot and then you dump in your meat, and you cook a little pozole on the side, and then you, which is like hominy almost, and you mix those up, and you have a big hearty stew. Probably the best. My favorite meal. And you could probably put a house cat in there, and it would taste good, right? <laughs> and I tell you what, man. If you get that red chili, if you get that, if you get your, uh, if you get everything mixed up just right, you could throw a carp in there, and it would taste Throw awesome. a carp in there? Yeah. Carp tacos. But man. I've had it that, is. and it wasn't until I met you that I knew that there was like a terroir. Terroir? What's that word in wine? Terroir? 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 I don't know. Say it again? Terroir. Yeah, like uh, meaning that, that each, like each place sort of has its own thing that it, that it imbibes in a flavor, right? And it's like a wine oh, thing yeah. that like this hill, the South Hill, has exactly. this extra quality that you don't get when we grow grapes on the north. Oh, yeah, you've got like your hatch But you were valley. like being into what valley chilies come from. Oh, yeah, the hatch valley. Obviously, everybody knows hatch chili, but a lot of volcanic soil. And then for the green chili and then northern New Mexico, uh, the Española Valley is my family's preferred red chili, which is green chili that's dried, crushed, and, you know, ground. And, um, and then each, it's interesting, each of the pueblos in New Mexico also take pride. They're like, our, our, chili, our green chili is better than the next door pueblo's green chili. So everybody's kind of got their own strains and different ways of preparing it. But, yeah. And you integrate that into your wild game. Yeah, and then you, I integrate a lot of green chili and red chili into, my, into our wild game cuisine. My, my wife does as well, so... Yeah, honey. Me and don't lie, because you've eaten carbs. I've served you carbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good. You liked it? It was edible. The, uh, what I did like from that same, we're talking about Wisconsin, right? Yeah. What was good, I remember those, uh, the ribs that we had off those, but they weren't off the carp, I think. That was were. a buffalo sucker. Yeah. That's a native fish. Yeah. But yeah. those ribs were good. Yeah. 
Like really like meaty good ribs off of a fish. Yeah, like the rib, the rib cage, man. Like yeah. You cook the rib cage off a buffalo sucker, which is like a carp, but it's a native fish, not a non-native fish. There used to be a commercial market for them in the old days. You just fry that rib cage? Or grilled you? them. Grilled. grilled them with ramps, which you probably don't have near your house either. How, how thick no, are those not ribs? That I know. Are they like quarter inch? Maybe not quite. They're like that thick. Well, there you go. Thin. The bone itself or the width of the meat? The width of the meat, yeah. Oh, yeah, then a solid, maybe even three-eighths. Wow. So what, what, are you, what are you hot on right now? What am I hot on? Uh, turkey liver pate. Ooh, Tell me yeah. more. Tell me Meat more. butter, as, as uh, a bunch of people on Instagram described it, which I had never called that growing up. But, um, yeah, I took a turkey liver and... Uh, I didn't mean to, but I ended up basically soaking it in water for about a week just because I didn't have time. And I was almost getting ready to pitch it, <laughs> I'll be honest, because I was like, yeah, I don't know if it's still going to be good. But it smelled fine, so I went ahead and did it. And quick recipe. Um, so I recommend anybody tries it because it literally took 30 minutes to, not even 30 minutes, probably 15 minutes to make and then maybe an hour to let it set up in the fridge. But so you soak it a week. Yeah, soak it a week. You can probably get away with just rinsing it. Um, <laughs> But uh, trim it up, <laughs> chop it up a little bit. And uh, I was surprised because it was a chicken liver recipe that I used, and it called for a half a pound. I was like, oh, man, like, how am I ever going to come up with a half pound of liver, right? But the turkey's liver actually ended up being a quarter pound. Which a is, turkey's liver is a quarter pound? Yeah, yeah. So I just had to have the recipe. I was surprised, yeah. Big liver. And uh, so chopped it up, and then uh, in a uh, pot with, I think, like a cup of water, you put that in there, one bay leaf, a uh, couple peppercorns, one clove of crushed garlic, and like a half a teaspoon of fresh thyme, I believe. Simmer for about three minutes, turn, turn the heat off, put the lid on it, let it sit for five more minutes, strain it out of the water into the food processor, remove peppercorns and bay leaves, buzz it until it's pureed, and then um, I read a bunch of recipes on how to make chicken liver pate, and, and people, uh, it, it varied greatly to, as to how much butter people put in. So for my quarter pound, I put in roughly three quarters of a stick of butter. Like the further east you go, the more butter you have. <laughs> yes. Definitely you, the more Latvian you are, the more butter you have. Did you say three quarters? Three quarters of a stick? Yeah, three quarters of a stick. Okay. And then uh, that's all, so it's all pureed up. And then I think the recipe called for cognac. I didn't have any, so I think I put in like a tablespoon of... Uh, Coors? Four. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no, it was uh, four roses whiskey that had some dust on it. Just but, straight up whiskey. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so you buzz that another second longer, put it into a ramekin, cover it, put it in the fridge, it sets up, and then smear it on crackers. It's delicious. You love it. Yeah. But, it's, you know, you get into the kind of the point of your, like, your creamed cart because you've almost taken what it was and transformed it, you know, so far to something else because you've added so yeah. many things. How long does it take to do that, Yanni? What's that? Well, it sounds like a pretty involved process. No, like I said, 15, 15? minutes. 15? Are you kidding me? No, it was quick and easy. But that, that's the thing that happens in wild game cooking where and we talked it was a bunch with steve kendrat's very wonderful 50 percent venison 50 percent pork fat sausage is at what point is it no longer wild game 
a quarter pound liver and three quarter sticks of butter, I would still like, <laughs> the fact that it's liver makes me be like, it's extra wild game, right? It's like extra wild game. So I still feel like that counts as a wild game dish. Mm-hmm. It was good. It's very definitely a wild game dish. I'm glad you brought up the, uh, his sausage though. Cause I was talking about this with your brother and we were talking about like adding too much fat, wasting a bunch of fat, right? Cause you end up with a pan that's got you know, sometimes a half inch of, uh, well, you cook those sausages that I made, right? There's like a half inch of fat that they're floating in by the time you're done cooking. But I feel like there's something else going on inside the sausage that when you, when you cut down the fat, because you're thinking like, oh, all I have here is waste, right? Because of all this extra fat I put in here. But something else is going on inside that sausage. It's changing the character of that sausage with that much fat in there. Yeah. Right, even though it's all like there's a bunch left and dripped out. Like when you cut that one compared to what you make with 25% fat, even though it's like there's a bunch of rendered out fat, what's left over is 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 a much different product. You're right because it gets like I think you had once said that you described someone's sausage as though you had browned a bunch of burger and crammed it into a sausage casing. Right, where it winds up being like it's like kind of like ground meat in a tube. And the fat, you're right. Even though the fat comes out, there's something about the high fat ratio that still makes it that you bite in and you're like, that is sausage. You guys all right? (laughs) (laughs) So that's what you're hot on to. Yeah. I'm definitely going to do it again next year. My my liver pate. All right. Concluders? Oh. you were supposed yeah, to bring something I'm up. I'm going to do it right now. Is that your concluder? And I'm have Use it a as your concluder. Segue, yeah. Is it, are we doing concluders? Let her rip. But are, you were thinking about doing a segue into my concluder. <laughs> but are, are you going to segue off of the moose heart? Because you could do a double seg. That's a double segue. Maybe you should do that. Um, let me think how to tee you up. <laughs> Speaking of heart, my moves. first concluder is thank you to everyone for coming out tonight. Um, my uh, my second concluder is um, there's only eight of these chairs in existence, but these are these handy dandy new Yeti chairs, so these are cool, very comfortable. My third concluder, my third concluder is uh, hey Brody, I keep thinking about that. Uh, Moose heart taco you made me. Speaking of moose, (laughs) we were talking to a Colorado Parks and Wildlife officer today about other recreational users on public land besides hunters um, and the impact they may or may not have on game and other wildlife. And Cal has been involved a lot with kind of bringing those recreational users together with hunters to like join up in this fight to protect our public lands, which got me to thinking about this thing that happened up, I believe at Brainerd Lake, not that, a couple of years ago, um, where a, I think he was an archery hunter, drew a, a, a moose tag for the Indian Peaks Wilderness there, which is, you know, right there by Brainerd Lake. And legally shoots a moose within close proximity of the trailhead. The moose kind of saunters through a meadow and promptly dies in front of some freaked out (laughs) hiker types, (laughs) which led to 
that area, like that area being closed within a one mile radius for moose hunting so that no more hiker types get traumatized by animals dying in front of them, which is kind of irritates me because, well, like it also it could happen anywhere. Like, you, you know, like a hiker could be hiking on any chunk of public land and be like, oh my God, I just I just shot. witnessed the life and yeah. death cycle. Yeah. What kind of place is this? And so, like, <laughs> if we're going to share public land with these other recreational users, which I'm all for, we got to share, right? Like, hunting's hunting and things die. And, like, I understand why it happened because it's in close proximity to Boulder and... But that shouldn't. But that shouldn't matter. No, don't do that. Don't do that because Brody, yeah. you also Brody provided his own counterpoint earlier yeah. that they had opened up like a like a basically a green space cow hunt there that went off right. very well. Exactly. I mean, some of you guys probably from maybe some of you guys hunted it. That when I saw it, I was like, "There's no way they're gonna pass this cow hunt it, like right outside the city city limits of Boulder on open space like county land." There's no way it's going to go. And it went over very well. You know, they reduced a herd of elk that was largely out of control because it wasn't getting hunted, and it went over. Did anyone kill one there? Anyone hunt it? Good luck. I feel like they should have charged those hikers more for having the experience of witnessing... (laughs) of, Of witnessing... Such a, like a, a rare occurrence. Yeah, like you watch it on, you pay cable television to watch that stuff, right? Yeah, you know, like, that's what my brother was recently telling me when he's watching an uh, uh, animal chasing another animal, he roots for the animal to get away. No, and I always I, find I myself kind of like, I hope he catches it. Yeah. yeah. He's like, oh man, I get depressed when like they catch it. Like if I was it. hiking, I'd be, like, <laughs> I'd be like, go down, go down, go down. Like, yeah, he got him. <laughs> Say it again. No points. Nope. Um, Callahan, you got a concluder? <laughs> yeah, so... Not this year. The, uh, thank you guys very, very much for all the public landowner t-shirts and all the compliments about our public lands, and they're amazing, and the Hunt to Eat t-shirts, and it's awesome, and uh, I hope you guys do more than just wear a good-looking t-shirt and get involved in this process. It's very easy. And uh, to talk about this experience that Brody's talking about here, um, I think it is incredibly easy and incredibly unproductive to kind of be like, screw you, I'm a hunter and I paid for this. And I'm, in fact, I'm paying for most of your guys' recreation opportunities. It's so fun to do do that though. (laughs) It's so fun and it's so easy. It's just not productive. So uh, trailhead diplomacy is something I always talk about. I like it. Tell me more. You just have to have a little bit of patience. You have to look at all this as a learning or a teaching opportunity, learning opportunity um, for both sides. And you got to be willing to listen just as well as you uh, explain your position. But, um, you know, all this stuff is... uh, we like to think of hunting as a right, but it's just uh, something that we really get to go out and enjoy, and it is a very real thing that it, it could go away. We could see it happen. So 
Uh, I think all of us as responsible human beings, adults, and hunters have to go out there uh, with a willingness to educate and make sure that this is around for a long, long time. Yeah. Did you tell? That's a tough one to follow up on. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, kind of riding on Cal's coattails there, I think back in the day here in Colorado, 1940s, 1950s, we had a lot of tremendous people who were world-class outdoor recreationalists, ski jumpers, basically our 10th Mountain Division guys. What did they, these are all the original outdoor recreationalists. And that generation was also fishermen and big game hunters. And so somewhere those paths, recreation, hunting and fishing have diverged. And so I think it's up to us now, it's going on with what Cal was saying, to kind of bring that full circle through trailhead diplomacy or otherwise, and just education, recruiting new hunters. And one thing, you know, that I see, uh, last year I was bummed out. I was driving through northern Colorado through, on a national forest road, and I kept driving past camp after camp of dudes in the middle of the afternoon. They're all saying, no, you didn't see a grizzly bear. Yeah, and they're saying, there's no grizzly bears here. There's no hippies here. Um, <laughs> so I was bummed out because I wasn't seeing any kids. I was just seeing a bunch of dudes here and a bunch of dudes there. I came over this little rise into a patch of aspens and I uh, looked up and there was two kids walking up the road with a 22 smiling at me. And it was a brother and sister hunting grouse with a rifle and their dad walking uh, right behind them and kind of made my day and I was like, God, we need more of that out in the woods right now. And I think, you know, and so, you know, imparting not to go too long here, but, you know, um, life is like a roll of toilet paper, man. The more you get into it, the faster it goes. There's so <laughs> many excuses not to take a buddy or a new hunter or a child hunting. And so you've just got to take it upon yourself to make that happen. Every opportunity you get, because every day that goes by you don't do it is a day that you didn't take someone else and bring them into this room that is full of people that do what we love. So that's all I got. Ronnie. Getting all warm and fuzzy in here. Yeah. Can you tee me up something? <laughs> <laughs> What's you, that? Can you serve me up? Can you tee me up something too? Like, a, like try to segue you into something? Yeah, give me a give me no, a I'm nice tapped piece out, man. I'm tapped, tapped out. out. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, um, that's funny because the warden today mentioned that too. Um, that stru- struck me, and I think you guys heard it today, where he mentioned that 10, 20 years ago, like every camp he went to. There were uh, kids in there, and a lot of times it was just mom, dad, and kids, and, and just kids that were not even old enough to hunt, but like every camp you'd stop at was like that. And now they literally get on the radio and go, oh yeah, we just stopped at a camp that had some people under 30 in it. Um, so he, he was pointing to that as you know, being a fact that we don't have this like younger generation coming up where we used to a lot. Much he said go. the average age was 56 or something, 56, something yeah. like that. I think there's a thing that happens, and I found it, and this is like just tacking on to your concluder, but the thing I found that I don't know if it was that something's changed, but I know a lot of guys now that seem to be that, that they're like very busy and they're kind of protective of these little times when they can get away. And it's kind of like there's a lot of people that don't want to be bothered by uh, there's sort of this mentality of not wanting to be like bothered by the annoyance of having kids. 
right? And, and so you, you can, I think that now, or maybe, not, maybe it's not something new, but there's this kind of like reluctance to be drugged down by how, I mean, they're little and they're hard to deal with. I have three little kids, and when, and when I'm fishing with them, I'm like sometimes not the person I want to be. James and may I, I ask you a like, question or two. And I got to just go like, okay. Yeah, I usually don't even get to pull the trigger when I have my kids with me. So you can't, there's no even ratio of, uh, you know, pull to dead shit. It's yeah, you're not, like yeah, bullet fire yeah, deal. It's like you, no one's yeah, shot. You might as well leave your gun at home. And then, and, but then I, I like, I, I now and then collect myself. I remember when I was getting a vasectomy at one point, the doctor went like this. <laughs> and then I knew, I was like, why have I been laying here 25 minutes? But um, yeah, I'll be like this with my kids, be like, just pull it together, pull it together, pull it together. And then come back out and be like, okay, everyone. We're going to get all these hooks out of everybody. <laughs> we're going to rebate and we're going to get back in the water, man. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's like you got to get them out. Yep. Yep. Thank you again for coming out. Yeah. I'll, I love all you guys. Uh, uh, one more minute. Oh, you got concluding. another concluder? Not, Please. Not, it'll be fun. But uh, we will be at the um, front doors. He's going to sign some books as, as long as we possibly can. And um, before you guys all get everybody, he says, oh, yeah, don't storm out of there. We'll be there. So you just, you know, nice and easy. Make your way there. But before you leave your seats, we have a couple hats. Does anybody like hats? Free hats. <laughs> oh, you got a stack? Yeah, you can toss those. Oh. Oh, these are the meteor hats. These are town, town hats. Yeah, they hawk them. <laughs> oh, my God. I got <laughs> Pick up your beer. All right, I'm out. <laughs> Thank you guys. Yeah, Denver. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order.